Um, it's been a little while since we've been in the book of Acts, and I quickly want to review that chapter 15 tells us that after a Jerusalem council ruled that Gentile believers in Jesus didn't have to follow the Jewish law to be saved or to be sanctified, um, a significant disagreement occurred between Barnabas and Paul, who had served on a first missionary journey with fruitfulness. And the disagreement, you'll recall, was over whether or not a young believer named John Mark was fit to go on Paul's second missionary journey because he had deserted them in part of their, a partial way through their first journey. And Paul's conclusion about John Mark was that, no, he shouldn't accompany Paul and Barnabas on a second missionary journey. But Barnabas, who's also called the son of encouragement, uh, wanted to encourage John Mark that he was still uh, needed in ministry. So the Apostle Paul and Barnabas parted ways and uh, Paul went with Silas and Barnabas went with John Mark. And we saw some life lessons, six of them, uh, earlier in these uh, verses. And quickly, the life lessons we saw previously was that most usually quitting has consequences. That's a bit of a no-brainer. Either negative or positive consequences when we quit. Life lesson two, sometimes the Lord divides in order to multiply. By Paul and Barnabas dividing uh, to two missionary teams, more places were reached for the gospel, more persons were discipled in following Jesus. Life lesson three, opinions are different than convictions. Opinions are based on personal preference and are less important than convictions, which are based on scripture. We ought to be willing to die for our convictions, but we may not cross the street for our opinions. Life lesson four, there's a significant ministry for young persons to do. Uh, pastor Timothy was a spiritually fruitful but a young pastor. I hope the young people in our congregation know that we believe there's significant ministry work for them to do while they are still young. Life lesson five, persons can really only endorse other persons that they know. And so the call was to be knowable, not to dash away from the morning campus on Sundays with not talking with anyone. Be knowable. Be involved in the ministries of our church. Be open, appropriately open with one another as part of the body and bride of Christ called Calvary Bible. And the last lesson we've already seen was that sometimes giving up the use of one's rights and freedoms in Christ serves a bigger purpose. We don't always have to hang on to our rights and freedoms in Christ uh, tenaciously. We can sometimes give up the use of them for the greater good. And we said the Lord Jesus Christ is the premium example of this. He gave up the use of some of his divine rights and prerogatives as very God when he became incarnate. And Timothy, Pastor Timothy, as young as he was, he gave up some of his rights and freedoms in Christ, namely as they pertain to not having to be circumcised in order to be a more effective minister to Jewish converts to Christ. And now we're ready for eight more life lessons. They'll be going fast because of time. They're based on what is recorded for us to have happened in the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas. And I'll begin reading at Acts chapter 15, verse 40, and through verse 5 of chapter 16. If you have your copies of God's Word, please refer to them. Acts 15, beginning at verse 
40, the disagreement. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches, 16. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number Daily. Will you notice, please, that Paul and Silas, in the passing on, in the relaying, in the announcing, in the explaining of the Jerusalem Council's ruling, which was a ruling that reflected God's grace, they strengthened and numerically they saw growth in the churches. The message of the grace of God continues to strengthen believers who will dwell upon it and live in it. And as believers are strengthened by the message of God's grace in the gospel, then the churches that they constitute by assembling together will also be strengthened and stabilized in the faith. And so our life lesson for today, the first is that the message of God's grace strengthens believers and their local churches in the sense of establishing those believers in those local assemblies. I don't go to the gym, but there was a time in my life when I did. And when I went to the gym and exercised on Nautilus weight machines, I found that the, in the tearing of fibers in my muscles, that eventually as blood flowed into those mildly torn uh, fibers in my muscles that my muscles grew stronger and bigger. And as my muscles grew stronger and bigger, there was stability, greater stability in the rest of my body, in my back, for instance, or in my neck, for instance. And so you've experienced it too, that as your muscles strengthen through exercise, there is a stability and a benefit. And so it is with the local church, this church, as we camp on the grace of God in Christ as we dwell on the grace of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, as we receive that grace and as we export that grace, as we traffic in that grace, as we dispense that grace to each other and to those outside of the faith in the community, then our church is strengthened by the grace message and stabilized And just like I had better posture when I worked out in the weight room, this church can have better posture in our testimony for Christ as we properly receive the message of God's grace. Sometimes people ask me, well, often people ask me, how are you? And sometimes I answer better than I deserve because I'm camping and dwelling in my mind on the grace of God toward me in Christ. Maybe that's a way you could sometimes answer the question, how are you? Verse 5 gives us our second life lesson. Let me reread verse 5. It says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith. 
not a faith. Strengthened in the faith, with the article, definite article, the faith, and increased in number daily. The second lesson I want us to see is that biblical faith is one faith. It's the faith. It's not a faith. It's not one of many acceptable faiths. A lot of evangelicals today have gone off the path, departed from Scripture, and they will tell you they believe there are many ways to heaven. There aren't many ways to heaven. There's one Savior. There's one faith in Him. There's one salvation. There is none other. And so in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it's emphasized there is one body and one spirit, capital S, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one faith. Jude chapter 3, chapter 1, verse 3, one chapter book. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you to concerning our common salvation, one salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There is one faith. Do not apologize that Scripture reveals one faith, not many. Verse 6 is an interesting verse. It says, Now when they, Paul and Silas, had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Isn't that interesting? They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. At least two questions pop into my mind with that propositional truth reported in verse 6. And the first question is, why in the world would the Holy Spirit forbid the apostles from preaching the gospel in Asia? That's my first question. My second question is, how exactly did the Holy Spirit forbid them from preaching the gospel in Asia? What did that look like? And these two questions bring us to our life lesson number three. And it is this. God is never late and sometimes he stops us to grow us. May I say that again? God is never late. And sometimes he stops us to grow us. That's a lesson. And so answering my first question, why in the world did the Holy Spirit forbid Paul and Silas to preach the gospel in Asia? The answer, I believe, is the Lord has established certain times for certain things. For example, he's determined how long you're going to live. He's determined when each of us would be saved. He's determined when we will marry, if we will marry. He has determined when we will have children if we marry. He has determined when Christ will return in the rapture event. The Lord has established certain times. And in the context of the verses we're looking at, the Lord had established a certain time when Asia Minor would first hear the gospel. And that particular time was not yet the Lord's time for the gospel to get to Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. Remember, the Lord is never late. And sometimes he stops us 
in order to grow us. God is never late, brother or sister, with regard to your bills or you meeting the person that he would have you'd marry. God is never late when you or your spouse are going to become parents. And he's never late in so-called unanswered prayers. All prayers are answered, yes, no, or wait. All prayers are answered, unless there's hindrance to our prayers. When Christian husbands don't treat their wives as weaker vessels, then our prayers are hindered, men. But when we're otherwise in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, all prayer is answered, yes, no, or wait. The Lord is never late. He's always right on time, even with regard to when he calls an aged believer home to heaven. You all know some aged believers who are longing for heaven. They are loosening their grip on this earth. They're ready to go, but they linger, sometimes bedridden. God is never late if you're watching online and you're shut in. God is never late. He will call you home in his way and at his time. He's never late. Second question was, how did the Holy Spirit forbid Paul and Silas from preaching the gospel in Asia? What did that look like? I believe the answer is that all we can say is that the Lord made evident that he was forbidding Paul and Silas and Timothy to enter Asia at that time by some noticeable providences of God, by some obvious God-arranged circumstances. What is a providence of God? Are providences of God active in our redeemed lives? Yes, they still are. What are some providences of God, times in which God intervenes in a clear way, guiding his people by the circumstances which he puts in place for his people? his individual believers. Let me give you some biblical examples of God's providences. Pharaoh's daughter finding baby Moses floating in a basket in the Nile River. A ram being tangled up in the bush, making it easy for, to become a blood sacrifice when Isaac was on the altar. Esther having the king's ear when it, the extermination of the Jews was plotted. Ruth gleaning in Boaz's particular field as a goel, kinsman redeemer, God appointing a huge fish to swallow Jonah, providences of God, Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb being available for the Lord. And this is one that was really dwelling on this week, a providence of God, the repentant thief on the cross dying beside the Christ and not beside anyone else who couldn't offer and deliver to him eternal life in heaven. Clearly, all of our redeemed lives are overseen by our all-wise redeeming God, not from a distance, not detached. His fingerprints, as it were, are all over the daily circumstances of our lives. Our God is proactive. He's not reactive. He is the one who directs us through our circumstances. He himself is never directed by us. 
Apparently, there were some clear divine providences that Scripture doesn't elaborate upon which blocked those willing missionaries from going to Asia when they thought that they would go to minister the gospel in Asia. And we aren't told what those particular blocks were or what those closed doors looked like, but whatever those blocks were, whatever closed those doors, they were evident enough to Paul and Silas and Timothy that in obedience and faith, they gave up on their idea to go to Asia at that time in favor of going to various other places where the Lord would and did open doors for ministry. I love that flexibility they had. I love it. I love that yielding they had that God had a better plan. I love that. And as it turned out, after the missionaries moved in a different direction than Asia Minor, seeking God's will, God stopped them again. Verses 7 and 8. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. There it is again. The Spirit did not permit them, verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. They got stopped a second time. You know, Psalm 37, verse 23, part A of the verse is very helpful. It says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And that is so true, of course. A man or a woman made good by Christ, that person's steps are ordered by the Lord. But it's also true that the stops of a man or a woman made good through Jesus Christ are also ordered by the Lord. The steps of a godly person are ordered by the Lord, and the stops of a godly person are also ordered by the Lord. Aren't you glad? And so currently, are you stopped? As it were, has God put a red light in front of you and you're waiting? There's a stop sign in front of the vehicle of your redeemed life and you're obeying it and you're sitting in place and you're stopped. Could it be that God has stopped you for a reason? Could it be that God has a plan to grow you in your stopped status? Can you believe that you're not out of God's will stopped, but you're smack dab in the middle of God's will while he's got you stopped so that he will grow you? He's got you stopped so he'll grow you? To those precious folks today who are currently stopped, I have a question. How are you handling it? By faith or fear? By faith or frustration, by compliance or complaint. Don't despise the day of small things. And also, don't despise the day of stopped situations. They may be of the Lord. Life lesson four God's stops are as good as his goes, closed doors are as much blessings as open doors. And you may have the right thing in mind, but the wrong time to do it. Or you may have the right thing in mind, but God wants someone else to do it. Verses 6 to 10. Second missionary journey further unfolds. 
Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia. I love that. Immediate obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel then. You might think in the mood that was finally the Lord called us to preach the gospel somewhere. Two other places we thought to go, it wasn't his timing or his plan, but finally, we know where to go now. They were eager to serve, and that brings us to life lesson five, and it's this. A known spiritual need isn't always a call to every Christian who knows the need. Now, that's a little delicate. A known spiritual need isn't always a call for every Christian who knows the need. Asia needed Christ. Paul and Silas and Timothy knew it, but the Lord didn't call them to take Christ to Asia. Bithynia also needed Christ, but Paul and Silas and Timothy knew it, but the Lord didn't call them there either to take Christ to Bithynia. The Lord intended others to take the gospel to Asia Meyer. The Lord intended others to take the gospel to Bithynia. Oh, but the Lord did call Paul and Silas and Timothy to take the Christ to Macedonia. Brother, sister, I, I'm so grateful for your eagerness to serve the Lord and to minister. So glad. But you might just have the right thing in mind, but you aren't the Lord's man or woman to do it. Pray for the Lord's man or woman, if it's not you, to do it. And if you have forged ahead and did that thing, if you were to do that, then maybe you would have robbed some other believer of the blessing of doing the thing that God willed for them to do in Ephesians 2.10 beforehand ordaining of the good works that that believer should walk in. It's how do you sort it out? Through prayer, watching opening and closing doors. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. When it says that Philippi was the foremost city in that area, there is a wisdom and a global strategy for world mission to, uh, to penetrate the largest cities of the world, not neglecting rural areas, but to penetrate strategically the greatest cities of the world, the metropolises of the world, because the demographical, uh, demographical trend in almost every country is a migration to cities for employment. Just a sidebar on, on global mission. And so at this point in the narrative, remember our Acts series is 0 to 60 because the book of Acts chronicles the history of the baby church from its birth in Acts chapter 2 to its 60-year birthday at the end of the book of Acts. And at this juncture in the progress of the church, the church is about 50 years old at this point in the story, and at this point, the gospel now is firmly 
steadily penetrating the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses, it says in Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now the gospel and the church, by this point in Acts, are in the ends of the earth, uh, firmly in Gentile country. Verses uh, 13 to uh, 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Bless her. She had a business. She was a businesswoman. She was at the river worshiping God with others. Verse Goes on, And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Pastor John MacArthur's note in his fine study Bible on this verse says, quote, evidently the Jewish community, I'll parenthetically add in Philippi, did not have enough, a minimum of 10 Jewish men who were heads of households required to form a synagogue. In such cases, a place of prayer under the open sky and near a river or sea was adopted as a meeting place, end of quote. So this brings us to life lesson number six. Very Religious persons, when I say that, who do you think of? A very religious person, you know. Life lesson. Very religious persons still need God-opened hearts to be saved. Who are you thinking of as a very religious person in your life? That person needs God to open his or her heart to the gospel so they would trust Jesus and not religion in order to be saved from sin. Verses 17 to 19 to conclude the passage. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. She's got a spirit of divination. She's not a believer yet. Verse 18, and this she did for many days. Amazing. But Paul greatly annoyed. The Bible's so real. But Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, little s, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour, personal Second person pronoun, he indicates that the spirit, this demon, had personality, intellect, emotion, and will. And he, the demon, came out of her that very hour, praise God. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. (laughs) Even a demon-possessed person was capable of knowing the truth. Truth number one, she knew. She said that Paul and Silas were servants of the true God. She was right. Truth two that she knew. She said that they were preaching the true and the only way of salvation. That was also true. You know, Satan knows God, about God. 
And Satan knows God's word well. He slightly misquoted God's word to tempt Eve. Satan took God's word out of context to tempt the Lord Jesus. And Satan believes in the true God. He knows God exists. And he trembles because he knows the true God. James 2, verse 19. You believe that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Someone says, I believe in God. You say, big deal. (laughs) Tell me more. Which God? Which Christ? Satan believes in God. Demons believe in God and tremble. Doesn't mean they're saved. So we can mark it down that very religious persons still need God-opened hearts to be born again. I want you to remember that, especially if you have a very religious person you love that's not saved. Remember that in your prayer closet. Life lesson seven of eight. It's possible to know and to believe the right things and still be separated from God and lost in sin. That sounds odd. It's possible to know and believe the right things and still be separated from God and lost in sin. Oh yeah, pastor, how do you, why would you say that? Because Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8, remember? He professed faith in Christ. He was even water baptized, but he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit for personal status and monetary gain. It is possible to know and believe the right things and still be separated from God and lost in sin because there's a difference between mental agreement and saving faith. Mental agreement does not equal saving faith. They're different. There was a tightrope walker, a daredevil, named Charles Blondine in the mid-19, excuse me, in the mid-1800s. And specifically, August of 1859, Blondine strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he walked across the tightrope pushing a wheelbarrow successfully. When Blondine got to the other side, the Canadian side, to great applause from maybe 100,000 persons who watched the daredevil stunt, daredevil stunt, he said, how many of you believe that I can walk back across to the American side pushing this wheelbarrow? And all the hands went up. We believe you can do it. Do it. We believe you can do it. And he said, who would volunteer to be in the wheelbarrow? And all the hands went down. There's a difference between mental agreement and saving faith. That's an important thing to remember. Just because you share the gospel and some say, I agree with that doesn't mean they have saving faith yet. Ask them, are you resting your complete trust and faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you just agreeing that the gospel is what I said it is? There's a difference. Either you believe the wheelbarrow can be pushed across the tightrope, or you will be willing to get in the wheelbarrow in this analogy of the Lord Jesus' finished work to get you to heaven. Our eighth and our last life lesson in the passage is this, that usually when someone says it's not about the money, it's about the money. (laughs) Ever notice that? Oh, it's not about the money. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You peel it back far enough, it's about the money. Yep. These slave girls' owners 
didn't have a theological axe to grind with the apostles. No, their axe to grind with the apostles was their financial losses because she no longer was demon-possessed and she no longer fortune-told. That's what got into their kitchens. That's what bothered them. If they said it's not about the money, it was about the money. Let's arrest and apprehend these apostles, take them to the marketplace and press charges because they're taking away our livelihood. Don't, don't worry about the, the demon-possessed young girl who's tormented in the night and probably couldn't sleep. Talk to herself maybe. Looked like she had mental illness because of demon possession. Don't, don't worry about her best interests. What's the bottom line to us? What it's, some people want to say it's not about the money. It is about the money. There's a solution to greed, you know. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. Now godliness, here's the cure, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and as certain will carry nothing out, no bumper hitches on funeral hearses. For we brought nothing into this world and as certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. If you battle greed, In a materialistic world, the way you'll be cured of your greed is to be content. Count your blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. The medicine for the sin of the love of money, which is the root of all evil, is contentment. The passage goes on in 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 10. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith, these are believers, in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let me land the plane of this sermon. You've been listening so attentively and God is pleased. Eight life lessons. Let me land the plane. Is there one particular life lesson that the Spirit of God impresses upon your heart that with his help you ought to cultivate in your life this new week? Is there one? Would it be the message of God's grace strengthening believers and establishing them? Would God have you to be a pipeline of his grace to someone this week? Or would it be the life lesson that biblical faith is one faith and not many faiths? To hone in on what the scriptures say is the way, the truth, and the life. To share that truth with people who believe all roads lead to heaven. Third, would this be what the Spirit of God wants to be renovating in your life this week? God is never late. (laughs) Accused him of being late in the privacy of your prayer closet? God is never late. Sometimes he stops us to grow us. Are you stopped? Seek to spiritually grow. Be in the book. Be in prayer. Assemble with loves of like precious faith. Use your spiritual gift. Put others ahead of yourself. Jesus first. While you are stopped. Could it be the life lesson that a known spiritual need is not always a call to every Christian who knows the need? It's a risky thing to say to a congregation that needs more workers. But God does not intend for any of his children to run around like a chicken with its head cut off. 
wearing too many hats because other believers haven't put on the hat that God intended them to put on in ministry. Don't rob anyone else of the spiritual blessing of the good work that he's prepared beforehand that they should do. Pray for those that are unutilized in this assembly who are not serving the Lord in this assembly in any way, shape, or form. Or could it be the life lesson that very religious persons still need God-opened hearts? Would, this week, would the Lord ask you to focus in your prayers for that very religious person who is lost as lost can be and pray earnestly for their salvation and opportunity to share the gospel with that very religious person that God has put you in a place of influence for them? Or could the life lesson the Spirit of God means to work in you be the fact that it's possible to know and believe the right things and still be separated from God in lostness? Could it be that someone, in the sound of my voice, mentally agrees with the gospel but has never put their full faith and trust in Christ in a personal way for salvation? Oh, come to Christ. Get in the wheelbarrow, as it were, let him carry you from this life to the next. Or, or could it be the life lesson that the Spirit of God wants to do home improvements on in your life this week? It would be, maybe you've said it's not about the money, but truth be told, it is about the money. Greed. This week, Spirit-enabled, Kill greed by being content. And one of the ways contentment is expressed is by giving. It says in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 about giving, one of the things it says is that out of a church's poverty they give liberally. One of the ways to kill greed this week is to be so content that you give away to others even in your scarce resources. 